Please turn in your Bibles or your phones, wherever you have it, to the book of Ruth, chapter 1. Uh, that's page 260 if you're using a few Bible. Ruth, chapter 1. We'll read the first seven verses. And then we'll also read from chapter 4, the, the last half of chapter 4. Ruth, chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Let's hear God's word. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. They went to the country of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left and her two sons. Now they took wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. And they dwelt there about ten years. Then both Malon and Chilion also died. So the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law, she might return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. Therefore she went out from the place where she was, and her two daughters-in-law with her. They went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Now please turn to chapter 4. We'll read the concluding verses of the book. We'll not give much attention to these verses today. But I think there's value in reading them because they give a sense of the completeness and significance of the book. So chapter 4, starting at verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And when he went into her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a close relative. And may his name be famous in Israel. And may he be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons, has bored him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her bosom and became a nurse to him. Also the neighborhood woman gave him a name, saying, There is a son born to Naomi. And they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now this is the genealogy of Perez. Perez begot Hezron, Hezron begot Ram, Ram begot Aminadab, Aminadab begot Nashon, Nashon begot Salmon, Salmon begot Boaz, Boaz begot Obed, Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David. Here ends the reading of God's Word. <coughs> this sermon was preached about ten years ago as part of a series on the book of Ruth. Uh, most of you weren't here ten years ago. <coughs> And uh, I, I checked with the elders and it seemed okay to, uh, to preach this sermon again. Uh, for, for those of you who were here, I hope there will be profit in looking again at this wonderful little book. Today we'll introduce the book and describe some key characteristics. We'll look also at the opening verses of the, of the first chapter, which we just read. Two weeks from today, we'll look at the rest of chapter 1. We won't look beyond that 
at this time, but I hope that our looking together here will pique your interest in this little book. It's a wonderful little book. We read only the opening and closing verses this morning because of time, because of time constraint, but I would encourage you to read the whole book if you haven't. There are just four chapters, 15 minutes to take care of it, very suitable for a reading, say, on the Lord's Day afternoon. Well, listen to these lines from the pen of Anne Bradstreet, New England Puritan and, and America's first woman poet. She penned these lines in grief over the death of her daughter-in-law, Mercy Bradstreet, in childbirth at age 28. Both mother and baby perished. Here's what Anne wrote. I'll read just the first eight lines. And live I still to see relations gone, and yet survive to sound this wailing tone. Ah, woe is me to write thy funeral song, who might in reason yet have lived long. I saw the branches lopped, the tree now fall. I stood so nigh, crushed me down with all. My bruised heart lies sobbing at the root. But thou, dear son, hath lost both tree and fruit. The death of a loved one is always grievous. The untimely death of a son or daughter can bring overwhelming sorrow. We read about Naomi's bereavement a few minutes ago, and looking at her loss will be part of what we do today. But first, a basic question. Why study the book of Ruth? It's a book that some people are actually not inclined to study. It's by far the shortest of the historical books of the Old Testament. And the focus of the book is quite local. There's nothing in it about what was going on in Israel as a whole at that time. Nothing about the judges or kings nearby or wars. The story takes place just in the little town of Bethlehem. And so some see the story as merely a small town story. A series of interpersonal interactions among a small cast of characters in a Hebrew village about 3,000 years ago. A nice story, some would say. You might be familiar with the play Our Town by Thornton Wilder. Some people see the book of Ruth as merely a sort of Middle Eastern version of the opening scenes of that play and thereby undervalue the book. The book of Ruth tends to be undervalued also because we have no idea who wrote it or when it was written. It just appears in the Hebrew Bible. Scholars with varying degrees of confidence have dated the writing of the book any time from the time of David, around 1000 B.C., to the time after the exiles returned, around 400 B.C. So for all these reasons, some people shrug, give little attention to this book. It's short, it's small time, with no idea who wrote it or when it was written. Why bother? But there's actually much blessing to be gained by looking at the book of Ruth. It's certainly not just an Old Testament version of the opening scenes of our town. The stories develop quite differently. 
And those who appreciate Ruth have noted that it's a very skillfully written piece. Perhaps the most beautifully written story in the Old Testament. It's a little masterpiece of writing. But even more importantly, it's not just a story. It's actual history. And it's a book which occupies an important place in the unfolding of God's great plan of redemption. Today we'll look at some features of the book as a whole, and then we'll look at the first seven verses of chapter 1. We'll look first at how the story is written, then at the people of the story, then at the preface to the story in verses 1 through 5, and finally at the God of the story, verses 6 and 7. So how the story is written, the people of the story, the preface to the story in verses 1 through 5, and the God of the story in verses 6 and 7. And we'll conclude with a couple of points of application. So first, how the story is written. The book of Ruth is, a, is brief partly because it's written with an economy of words. The narrator is telling a single story with no sidelights or subplots. In other words, it's linear. Now, as you know, history is generally not linear. It's complicated, and it's easy to get lost in the complications. Some historians actually complicate history further by focusing primarily on interesting sidelights. That causes confusion, and that's not what the author of the book of Ruth does. The story of Ruth is singular, linear, bare-bones, even terse in places. The narrator sticks to the story and includes no irrelevant information. Because of that, the story moves quickly. You get the sense as you read that this story is headed somewhere. And you then begin to wonder if the narrator is intending to convey something of importance. That helps you stay focused. At the end of the book, you find that the story has indeed been going somewhere. That it has a significant conclusion with far-reaching consequences. Ruth is a linear story, and that's important. And Ruth is also a vivid story, and vivid for at least two reasons. One reason is that the story moves forward chiefly by means of dialogue. Apart from the opening seven verses of prose which we read, and the closing five verses, which are a brief genealogy, the book consists largely of conversation. And conversation tends to hold a reader's attention much better than an author saying that so-and-so did such-and-such. Dialogue makes the story vivid. But also the story is vivid because the things that happen, the facts of the story, are themselves engaging. The account begins with heart-rending loss. Naomi bereft of her husband and sons, far from home, no no visible means of support, and ends with great blessing and with suspense along the way. And not because the narrator made stuff up. These are the facts of the story, the way that God caused things to happen in history. All of these things, God the Holy Spirit has built into the book so that the story is both clear and interesting, and especially so that readers will see that this small town story is actually a key part of God's great plan of redemption. The plan laid down before the foundation of the world. So that's how the story 
is written. Then secondly, the people of the story of Ruth. The book of Ruth is one of two Old Testament books that are named for women and in which a woman is the central character, the other book being the book of Esther. Actually, two of the three main characters in Ruth are women. And in both Ruth and Esther, it's not just that a woman is a main character. It's more than that. In both books, a woman has a critical place in the continuation of the line of faith that leads from Abraham to Jesus Christ. Ruth, though she was a Moabite, becomes a direct ancestor of Jesus. Esther saves the entire Jewish nation from death, including the ancestors of Jesus then living. Both of these women had key roles in the unfolding history of redemption. Now there aren't many people in the story of Ruth, only a handful, but every person is integral to the story. There are no hangers-on. This complements the linearity of the story and helps the reader focus. You don't get distracted by oodles of names of people and lots of detailed information. The people who are not important to the story disappear quickly. Elimelech, Naomi's husband, as a character, is out of the story by the third verse of the book. His name appears later only in connection with the disposition of his property. His two sons and his daughter-in-law, Orpah, are likewise out of the story very early on. From the middle of chapter 1 till almost the end of chapter 4, that is for most of the book, there are only three named individuals, Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. These three people carry the weight of the story. There are also two unnamed individuals who speak very briefly. The servant in charge of the reapers in in chapter 2, the close relative in chapter 4. There are also several groups of people who each speak one line. The reapers, chapter 2, the women of Bethlehem, chapter 1, chapter 4, and the elders and people at the gate in chapter 4. A small number of people, but every person integral to the story. And now in regard to the people of the story, a key point. With the single exception of Orpah, who is out of the picture early on, all the people in the book of Ruth, even those who are unnamed, appear as faithful to God and, as far as we can see, dedicated to loving their neighbors. This is one of the things that makes the book of Ruth truly beautiful. It's part of the uniqueness of the book. There is no other historical book, Old Testament or New, in which all of the people appear to be so full of grace. Even the close relative in chapter 4 who, who declines to marry Ruth has been, has been misunderstood and I believe actually acts responsibly in caring for his household. In other words, Ruth is a book about people who love God. Beautiful people who knew his grace and gave themselves to loving him and loving their neighbors. That would be remarkable at any time. But it's particularly remarkable in this book when you consider the time, the era, when this story is taking place. Chapter 1, verse 1 tells us that the story takes place during the period of the judges. And that's one of the wildest and most disorderly times in the whole Old Testament. 
a time when much evil was done throughout Israel. <clears throat> the worst of the evil is in the last five chapters of the book of Judge, Judges, which immediately precede the book of Ruth. The time of the Judges is summarized in the last verse of the book, which says there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. That's the book of Judges. Yet, amazingly, in this time, by contrast, the people of, people of Ruth are characterized by grace and faithfulness. Evil things are being done throughout Israel, but grace is being poured out in Bethlehem. Bethlehem was truly an island of grace in a sea of evil. A people of the story. Well, moving now to the, to the text, <clears throat> we'll look at the preface to the story, chapter 1, the first five verses. The narrator begins the book with a brief paragraph that condenses something over ten years into five verses. <clears throat> In this preface, there's no conversation. In a few words, the narrator sets the scene for the story proper, which begins in verse 6. And the scene that he describes is grim. A scene of death, death, death. The story moves quickly. During the time of the judges, that is sometime during the period 1400 to 1050 BC, there's a famine in Israel. Elimelech of Bethlehem takes his wife and Naomi, his wife Naomi and his two sons to neighboring Moab so that they won't starve. Elimelech dies. His sons Malon and Chilion take Moabite wives, Ruth and Orpah. Both sons die after about 10 years. The preface concludes briefly and matter-of-factly in verse 5. The woman, that is Naomi, was left without her two sons and her husband. That's the scene that the story proper begins. That's the situation. But let's pause to think about that last sentence. The woman, Naomi, was left without her two sons and her husband. In order to appreciate everything that follows, we need to understand Naomi's situation as fully as possible and to the extent that we can to enter into it. Specifically, we need to come to grips with two things here. First, the depth of Naomi's personal loss. First, her husband, the dearest person on earth to her. If you're married... Try to imagine losing your husband or wife. Your lives are so entwined. So much of what is you is wrapped up with your dear one. Then one day, he or she is taken. The next morning when you wake the other side of the bed is empty. And the next day is the same and the next. Your loved one isn't just gone on a short trip. The loss of her husband was surely heavy for Naomi. But perhaps even more grievous in a way was the death of her two sons. The death of a spouse is devastating. But widows and widowers often remarry eventually and find comfort. But the death of a son or daughter, especially a grown son or daughter, is different. The death of grown children is widely recognized as one of the hardest possible things for human beings to bear. Many who experience it 
really never get over. Naomi lost both of her two sons. How deep must have been her grief when she was in a foreign country amid people who did not know God and therefore without fellowship. Secondly, in entering into Naomi's experience, we also need to understand the depth of her financial loss. For in all likelihood, these three deaths would have left her without income. There was little or no way in that time and culture for women to earn money. They are completely dependent upon their male relatives. There was no social welfare. And, in this case, Naomi was in a foreign country surrounded by unbelievers to whom she was a foreigner. How she must have cried to God for comfort and deliverance. And God saw and heard the Lord, Yahweh, behind the scenes, was all the time working out his great plan. And right at that time, he initiated the next phase of that plan, a phase which Naomi, in which Naomi played a key part. And so we'll look now, fourthly, at the God of the story, as <clears throat> described in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. That is how God is revealed in this story. The preface ends in verse 5 with Naomi in a desperate situation of overwhelming grief and probable destitution. But the story proper in verse 6 begins with a note of hope. It says that then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord Yahweh had visited his people by giving them bread. Notice here the narrator's perspective as he relates this good news. He doesn't say in verse 6 that Naomi heard that the famine was over. He doesn't say that. No, he says that Naomi had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord Yahweh had visited his people by giving them bread. Isn't that lovely? God had visited his people. What a difference perspective makes. The Bible teaches that the earth belongs to God who made it. That in God's earth things don't just happen. Be they calamities like drought or good things like rain. For the God who rules the universe sends both. He doesn't tell us humans why he's sending a calamity or why. He doesn't have to. He just does it. Pandemics likewise happen when God sends them and, and end when he determines. And again, without his telling us why. We may speculate, but this side of eternity we will probably not know. So the chief character of the book of Ruth, though always behind the scenes, is God himself. Now, I emphasize always behind the scenes. For in this book, God doesn't speak from heaven, as he did earlier when he spoke to Abraham or to Moses. Nor does he speak through his prophets, as he did later in the Old Testament, many times. Nevertheless, if you read through the book of Ruth, you'll find God's name, Yahweh, everywhere in the book 
The event in verse 6 which opens the story is ascribed to Yahweh's care for his people. Likewise, the event which announces the successful completion of the story in chapter 4, the conception of Obed by Ruth. Chapter 4, verse 13 says, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and when he went into her, the Lord Yahweh gave her conception, and she bore a son. Yahweh gave her conception. This is the key event which brings the story of Ruth to its conclusion. The event that carried forward God's great plan of redemption. These two events, chapter 1, verse 6, Yahweh visiting his people by giving them bread. Chapter 4, verse 13, Yahweh giving conception to Ruth, are the two key events which bookend the story of Ruth. Both of these events are ascribed specifically to Yahweh. These bookends tell us that the story of Ruth is God's story. History, it has been said, is his story. It is indeed. And there's much about Yahweh between the bookends of the story, between these two bookends. As we know that the people of the story are people in whom God has worked his grace. They're very conscious of his hand upon their lives and his faithfulness to them. And that consciousness of God takes expression in their speech. There are 16 mentions of God between the two bookends. And all of those mentions, without exception, come from the lips of the people of the story. All of them. 13 of those 16 times they call him by his personal name, Yahweh. The name that expresses his covenant faithfulness. Twice he's called the Almighty, once he's called simply God. But his name is always spoken by the people in the story. Nowhere other than in the bookends themselves does the narrator say, Yahweh did such and such. If you read through the book, as I hope you will, you'll find that almost all of the people in the story speak of Yahweh. And often when they mention his name, it's to invoke his blessing on someone else. Naomi, Boaz, the reapers, the elders at the gate, the women of Bethlehem, all invoke the blessing of Yahweh upon others in eight separate blessings. For instance, in chapter 2, Boaz comes to the field where his reapers are harvesting barley. In verse, verse 4, it says, And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, Yahweh be with you. And they answered, Yahweh bless you. These blessings were not mere formalities. These people knew that God's name was not to be uttered lightly. They invoked his name because they knew him to be their faithful God. They were conscious of him overseeing their lives. And they wanted his blessing to be upon their neighbors. The blessings are easily seen as you read through the book. For that's the God of the story. <clears throat> A couple of concluding points. Uh, first, a question. Actually, both, both points are questions. A question. <clears throat> How robust is your personal faith and trust 
and God. God in his infinite wisdom sent Naomi a lot of trouble and anguish. He sorely tested her faith and trust. How would you handle serious trouble such as she had if God should send it to you? Would you still love him? Would you still trust him? I ask this because accepting the hand of God can be difficult. We acknowledge theoretically that God has the right to send trouble upon us. Oh yes. That's fine, however, until the trouble actually arrives. For it's then that we find out the reality of our faith and trust. Naomi recognized God's hand of affliction at the end of chapter 1. She said this, Yahweh has testified against me. The Almighty has afflicted me. Yet she continued to trust in God. God will do with your life and mine as he judges best. Will you trust him to care for you if he should stand difficulty? Could you say truthfully with Job, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him? Now, of course, through all the troubles of life, God will be your strength, your comforter, your shield. He will bring you through and take you when you die into his presence forever, whereas the psalmist says there is fullness of joy. But would you be willing to accept it if the path that he maps out for you in this life is a tough one? So, how robust is your trust in God? Something to think about and pray over. Secondly, about loving your neighbors. How are you doing about actively loving your neighbor? We've noted that the people of the book of Ruth are characterized by an unusual measure of grace and that these people were characterized by kindness toward their neighbors. We don't know for sure why they were so caring. But it's good to remember that these people had just lived through a famine a time perhaps when they'd seen loved ones starve. It's possible that God had taught them to love their neighbors as they suffered through the famine. Loving God and loving our neighbors should go together, of course. Jesus teaches us that. Both can and should go through affliction. But I ask this question about how you're doing with loving your neighbor, <clears throat> partly because of personal experience. Affliction can take many forms, some private, some public, some even universal, like the current pandemic. However, however affliction comes, it can, it can work the opposite of love in us, particularly if it drags on. We can become self-centered, impatient, inconsiderate. Even a little discomfort can turn us inward, make us selfish, even give us a sense of entitlement. The opposite of loving your neighbor. For loving your neighbor usually means putting yourself out for someone else. So how are you doing about loving your neighbor? Your spouse? Your father or mother? Your children? 
your brothers and sisters in your family, your next door neighbor, your co-workers, your brothers and sisters in this church. Again, something to think about and pray over. Finally, whether or not you're experiencing trouble, <clears throat> cultivate a cheerful spirit. I'm not the best person to be saying this, but it's, it's the teaching of the word. <clears throat> the book of Proverbs says, a merry heart does good like a medicine. We've been looking at the heavy part of the book of Ruth today. The rest of the book shows God's wonderful blessing. We can all get down in the weeds sometimes. Lose, lose our all cheerfulness. And more importantly, lose the bigger picture of God's unch unchanging, sovereign love for us. We should never lose that big picture. Maybe you remember Eeyore the donkey in Winnie the Pooh. You may remember he was the gloomy one, always down in the woods, down in the weeds, excuse me. For him, life is miserable, but I'm sticking it out nobly. Remember him? He had a, one famous line that sticks out. He said, one can't complain. I have my friends. Someone spoke to me only yesterday. Gloomy, but sticking it out nobly. Well, we as Christians shouldn't just be sticking it out, even if we're <coughs> afflicted. We are sinners forgiven. We've been brought to know God and his love. To the Christians of Philippi, the Apostle Paul said this, Rejoice in the Lord always. And then to make sure that they were listening, he said, Again, I will say it, rejoice. Despite troubles, the life of a Christian is fundamentally a life of deep-seated joy and thankfulness. So let us truly rejoice that Yahweh is our God and that he loves us and that he will never let us go. Listen again to Paul and the magnificent words by which he closes Romans chapter 8. He says, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let's, let's give thanks to him. Lord, we bow before you, praising you for your sovereign rule not only for your sovereign rule, but for your care and provision for us, your redeemed people. We pray, Lord, that you would give us that trust in you that, that Naomi had through her, throughout her affliction. And, and give us, likewise, Lord, love for our neighbor. Increase our trust, our fruitfulness. May we receive encouragement deep in our hearts from knowing that you have loved us and will never let us go. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.